0: we're continuing in our series uh, called Choices, Decisions That Shape the Soul. And uh, as we've been going through 1 Samuel, and we'll get to 2 Samuel uh, next year, which sounds like a a long time from now, but it's coming up pretty quick. Uh, We'll get to 2 Samuel. And and my guess is in these stories, you're already seeing that the choices, the decisions that people are making certainly do impact them. Uh, It did back then. It does today. um, And we're going to continue to look at another story this week found in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So if If you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible or you don't have one, feel free to use the one that's in the pew rack in front of you. Go to page 465. Uh, You will find the story that we're going to be looking at today. But let me begin by just uh, by asking a question. What what comes to your mind when you you think about envy and jealousy? What comes to your mind when you think about envy and jealousy? Shakespeare in Othello called Envy the Green-Eyed Monster. Maybe that's what, what comes to mind. But if, if, just let your imagination go for a moment. What, what do you picture? What do you envision? Kind of like in those old Polaroid pictures. You had to snap some of you're old enough to remember that. Some of you have no idea what that is. Uh, slowly the image becomes, it comes to the surface. What, what, what's, the, what's the pictures? And, and maybe if you're having a little struggle picturing something, I'll help you because I collected some pictures. Uh, here, here's some pictures of envy and jealousy. Little guy outside the ice cream store looking in, going, Why didn't I get invited? Uh, here's another one for you. A little Christmas scene. Uh, a, a little girl who does not believe that the best gifts come in small packages. Uh, another picture. Um, yeah. I, I love the look on the little girl's face. She's either very angry or she's puckering up, thinking, I'm next. I'm next. And these are just, you know, these are cute pictures. But really, when it comes to envy and jealousy, um, you know, when it when it begins to 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 grow in us, it, it isn't cute. In fact, it's frankly just quite destructive. And it, and it can happen in some seemingly harmless ways. Uh, envy and jealousy can can start, and sometimes those best pictures are told are, are created by by hearing stories. Uh, if you're a basketball fan, you, you maybe have heard a couple uh, couple weeks ago, um, Kobe Bryant, after just playing the San Antonio Spurs, um, which they got, they got thumped, they lost 93 to 80. Uh, Kobe Bryant was sort of expressing his angst with the current situation with the Lakers. It's the worst start for the Lakers in their franchise history. They're losing a lot of games. And, and, um, and Kobe was quoted uh, as saying this about the San Antonio Spurs. Because I don't know if I can express to you how jealous I am of the fact that Tim, Tony, Manu, and Pop, that's three players and a coach, have all been together for all those years. Not all this up and down stuff. Poor Kobe. Uh, I mean, he's got championship rings. uh, But what he's doing is it's sort of the, the grass is greener. We've all been there. You look across, you see someone else's circumstances and you say, "I wish my circumstances were what they were, what they are experiencing." Um, and and, and that, it kind of can creep in that, that, that way, kind of innocently. Uh, and then if left unchecked, it can become quite toxic. Uh, consider the story of Cheryl Nelson. Lives in Michigan. Cheryl and her boyfriend. Cheryl's fifty-two years old. She has a boyfriend. Her boyfriend breaks up with her. She's pretty upset by that. And uh, through some months, the boyfriend has a new girlfriend, and this really upsets her. And jealousy begins to to settle into her to her heart. And so, what she decides to do, she opens up a fake Facebook account. Opens up a fake Facebook account, and and puts it in the name of his. Uh, of the the ex-boyfriend's new girlfriend. So a fake Facebook account in the name of this, this new girlfriend, and she sends harassing and evil messages to herself, to her Facebook page, for a year. Now, why would she do that? In hopes to paint this new girlfriend in such a negative light that the boyfriend, who now we know made a very wise decision in breaking up with this girl to begin with, right? <laughs> to paint the new girlfriend in such a negative light that the boyfriend will want to return back to, to, back to Cheryl. Now Cheryl's been found out. She was running for a while. Now she's facing some felony, felony charges. A story like that tells us that envy and jealousy can look so innocent. It's like looking through a window and seeing someone eat ice cream. Wish I was there. Why wasn't I invited? And it actually can can grow and manifest itself in such toxic ways to where we're doing something absurd like opening a fake Facebook account and sending harassing messages to ourselves to make us look good and someone else look bad. Here's another picture. It's it's a quick thirty second uh, video, a commercial from Buick, and you, what you'll see here is that in in envy and jealousy, the relationships that are most precious to us can be undermined and eventually can be destroyed. here's just a quick quick video. Catch catch. See if you can catch envy like the envy and jealousy. she has got a new car. what do they get? I don't know. It's pretty nice. Maybe he got a raise. Good for him. Sure. Enclave hey. One of five expectations gotcha. Look, Garcia's got, got, got a new car oh, Must have got a race oh, Good for him Good for her And just a little statement is, And he looks at her And of course, Mr. Garcia is handsome and fit Looks great, new car The other guy looks like a dweeb He's in his kitchen, right? I mean, who keeps binoculars in their kitchen? Apparently he does. <laughs> who looks at neighbors through their binoculars? Apparently he does. Right? So it's like, it's, and it just, it can enter in in very simple ways. A neighbor's new car. Someone's getting ice cream. I'm not getting ice cream. Here's what I want to do today. I want to look at this story in 1 Samuel chapter 18. I want to show you uh, some things. First thing I want to show you, I want to show you how envy, we're looking at the life of King Saul and King David right now, and I want to show you how easily envy and jealousy crept into King Saul's life. The the, the green-eyed monster, as Shakespeare puts it, how the green-eyed monster is conceived and birthed in Saul's life. I want to define for us what envy and jealousy is. And I'm going to show you how this green-eyed monster slips into the life of Saul and how it's left unchecked and how it actually turns Saul into a monster. In fact, from this story forward, Saul is going to be obsessed with killing and hunting and hunting down and killing David. David. I'm going to show you how that, what that looked like in Saul's life. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how to recognize the green-eyed monster in your friends, because not you, because you don't have this problem. I'm just going to show you how to recognize the green-eyed monster. And then I'm going to, I'm going to give you some practical steps of how you, can, how you can slay this monster. Because when it comes to envy and jealousy, we all believe in capital punishment. With this, this monster has to be put to death. So that, that's where I'm going this morning. I'm going to begin in, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18. And uh, a little context for us. This is just chronologically, this is shortly after David kills Goliath. Jennifer last week talked to us about that iconic story and talked about how courage, when courage rises up, it overcomes our fears. And how David was, was, this righteous anger that David had, that here was this giant taunting the armies of Israel. And when you taunt the armies of Israel, you're not just taunting people, you're taunting God. And David steps in and says, enough. This is shortly after that victory in battle And uh, let me pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact. By taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And there we have it. A victory in battle. David is the hero. From this this moment on, when he he kills Goliath, he is launched into prime time. He's on the cover of magazines. He's, He's on the news. He's invited to all the talk shows. He, David is David is the national hero, and the army is returning home, and they're coming back home. And as as they're coming back home, a song is sung. Saul has killed his thousands. That's quite an achievement. Way to go, Saul! David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul hears the song, and it settles into his spirit. And the green eyed monster is conceived and born. And immediately he gets angry. And from this day on, he casts a suspicious and jealous eye on David. And it's not like it was David's idea, right? David didn't say, hey, I just killed Goliath. I've been writing this song on my tent, anticipating this moment. Let's, write, this is, let's put song sheets out there. I want everyone to sing this song when I'm coming back to town. Nah, that, that, that wasn't, David didn't do that. It was was just sort of this this spontaneous eruption of celebration, of of victory in battle. And Saul has killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. And and the green-eyed monster comes alive in Saul's life. And as I mentioned before, from this point forward, Saul will attempt to kill David in many different ways. Friends, it happens that easily. Someone gets the promotion that you were hoping to get. The, the the friend you grew up with gets married and you wish you were married. Uh, the neighbor gets a new car and you wish you had a new car. Someone gets a nicer house. I mean, all these, someone gets a compliment, you don't get the compliment. Someone gets recognized. Saul, apparently Saul's identity is rooted in recognition and in admiration from the people. And the moment that that admiration and recognition is going somewhere else is the moment that his identity feels threatened. And what Saul is going to do here is with his actions, he is going to scream, your success is my failure. And that's what it looks like when envy and jealousy is conceived in our hearts and our spirits. And it comes in that it's someone getting invited to a party that you didn't get invited to. A song is sung, and envy is conceived and birthed and left unchecked, it will undermine the relationships that are closest to you. Let's define, As the second part of my talk, is let's define what envy and jealousy is. Thomas Aquinas, when answering the question, what is envy and jealousy, says this, it is sorrow for another's good. It is unhappiness with another's happiness. This is, this is, and this is really the beginning of envy and jealousy. It's this, I see someone else being celebrated. I see something good happening for somebody else. And I wish it was happening for me. And when envy begins to sink its roots in, what it turns to is that I actually am sad for your happiness. And, and as we'll see, what ends up happening too is that when you become unhappy, unhappy I become happy. I actually rejoice when you fall. That, that's when envy and jealousy really gets, really gets twisted. Uh, and, and so, but jealousy let's, 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 uh, let's talk about jealousy a little because envy wants what others have while jealousy wants to keep them from having it uh, imagine if you would sort of like this scale on this one side you have the beginning point of, of envy this is looking through the window and seeing someone eat ice cream and understand you weren't invited on the other point of the scale this is you setting up a fake Facebook account and harassing yourself to make someone else look bad Full-blown jealousy and envy. Somewhere between the initial thought and feeling, envy gives birth to jealousy, and and envy is wanting what others have, or covetousness, while jealousy actually becomes this action action plan. We're going to see it in Saul's life. the, The actual steps that we take to keep someone else from enjoying what they have. Or hopefully take it from them. Uh, One one writer uh, puts jealousy and envy this way. Jealousy largely manifests itself as uncontrolled resentment. And is often triggered by fear of losing something. Whereas envy is basically coveting what belongs to someone else. Jealousy wants that person to be hurt. Envy wants the person's gift. Jealousy wants that person to lose their gift. Envy wants the person's beautiful new car. Jealousy wants to see it scratched and smashed. Envy wishes they had your home. Jealousy would like to see it burned down. Envy desires the person's job. Jealousy helps the person get fired. Envy is the thought. Jealousy is the obsession. And in Saul's life, what you have is a song being sung. It's as simple as that. And it gives birth to anger. And it gives birth to jealousy. And Saul has this envy. Why are they singing about David? He's killed his tens of thousands. Poor me. How come they're only giving me this much credit and giving David this much credit? And this feeling of envy then gives birth to jealousy. Saul will be obsessed in removing David from this planet. So this is what it looks like. We've told you how I've told you how it creeps in. We defined it for you. Let's just let's look at some 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 case studies here from uh, from the story here in chapter eighteen. Uh, look at verse ten i just read these couple verses here. Verse 10, this is after uh, Saul is keeping a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelms Saul. I mean, hit the pause button there. A tormenting spirit from God? What, what does that mean? It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. In English, it looks like God does something bad to someone. Um, really, what, what, what's being said here is God is removing his protective hedge from Saul's life. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked about anger, and when we have unresolved anger, what happens is, is that we leave a door of opportunity for the evil one to bring harm to our life. This is why it's so important to, to not let the sun go down on your wrath. Saul has been making poor decisions. It's shaping his soul. And what what is happening now is that God is lifting the protective hedge from Saul's life. So uh, that that's, sometimes verses like that can be like, whoa, wait a minute, that's you become to question God's character. But that, that's sort of the, the, the nuances of the Hebrew language that are being translated into our, our language. So the, the very next day, a, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp, and as he, did each, as he did each day. But Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. It begins with spear chucking, right? Envy, when it starts to get to jealousy, begins with spear. We we see the person that we don't like, or is making us look bad, or is getting more credit than us, or has more stuff than us. We don't like it, and so what we do is we chuck spears. We try and pin. We try and we, the critical spirit comes alive in us, and that's what Saul's doing. He wants to take matters in his own hands and throw throw some spears. And then the second thing he does, we pick up in verse thirteen. Finally, Saul sent him away, speaking of David, because he couldn't couldn't pin him to the wall. Finally, Saul sent him away and, and appointed him commander over a thousand men, and David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. Here's what Saul is doing. I can't take care of this problem myself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put David on the front lines. I'm going to send him to hot zones. I'm going to send him to where the battle with the Philistines is the fiercest. And if I can't take care of this, maybe the Philistines will be able to take care of this. He puts David at risk, which, by the way, when we get to the story of David and Bathsheba, and David decides to send Uriah to the front lines to be killed, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. He learned it from Saul. If I can't handle the problem, I'll send him somewhere else and they'll handle the problem. Verse 19, now what we're seeing here is we've seen the spear chucking and and now we say, well, maybe someone else can take care of this for me. I'll put that person at risk. And now what's gonna happen, remember, envy and jealousy undermines and destroys the relationships that are close to us. Now what Saul is going to do is he's going to manipulate his own family to try and rid, rid his life of David. So he gives him this, 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 this battle to go fight, and he promises, he dangles his daughter Merab in front of David. David, if you're successful in battle, you'll get my, my daughter, and you will be a prince. You'll get the proud position of being a son-in-law of the king. Like, that's attractive at this point. And, and, and see, he's dangling his daughter in front of David. David goes into battle, and he, he's successful. When he comes back, what Saul does—you pick up in verse 19. So when the time came for Saul to give his daughter Merab in marriage to David, he gave her instead to Adriel, a man from Mahola. It's it's humiliation. I promise you one thing, but you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it. I'm to It's public humiliation. It's making, it's making David look bad. That's the attempt. So we got spear chucking. We've got put the person at risk. We're going to humiliate them. Verses 20 through 27 are a bit of an odd story. It's more attempts at putting David at risk. Saul hears that his next daughter, Michael, is in love with David, and he is delighted. He's not delighted that his daughter is in love with David, and that's, that's, that's so romantic. What he's delighted about is that the fact that it's an opportunity. Another opportunity to rid himself of David. So what he does is he gives David a battle to go fight, and he has a price tag. There's a bride price that he must pay. He must bring back to Saul 100 body parts. I won't tell you what parts of the body are. You can read the story yourself. It's a little bizarre. There's kids in the room, so we'll just leave it at that. What David does, he has to go bring these these unique body parts back to Saul... It's another attempt at, at putting David at risk. But what David does is he doesn't bring the 100 body parts. He brings 200 body parts. It's another attempt to put David at risk. And now Saul is manipulating his own family. You see it again, chapter 19, verse 1. Now there's an assassination uh, conspiracy in the palace. Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan. Remember Jonathan, the best friend? Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father was planning. It, Saul is, he's manipulating his own sons and daughters. He's, he's so obsessed. Remember, envy is the thought, it's the idea. And it's and it's it left unchecked, the green-eyed monster is going to grow into full-blown jealousy. And you know, not all jealousy is bad. We're, we're told that our God is a jealous God. There is healthy jealousy. I mean, in a marriage, if you have a husband and a wife, and then you have another woman who's trying to seduce the husband and alienate that husband from that marriage, that would be for the wife to be jealous. That's a good, that's a good thing. That's actually a picture that's given to us of how God feels about us when we are distracted or attracted to other things other than God Himself and, and His purposes. He's a jealous God. There is a righteous jealousy. But when it comes to spear chucking and putting people at risk and trying to humiliate people, Assassinating their character, manipulating others so that you can look good and someone else can look bad, that's a very unhealthy jealousy. And that's what it's beginning to look like in Saul's life. Saul will have the green eyed monster come to life in him simply because somebody sang a song. A song was sung. And envy was conceived and born. And Saul was unhappy for David's happiness. And now he's being very strategic of how to ruin David and to murder him. So now let's talk about how do we recognize that in the person you're sitting next to. But here's the interesting thing about, about recognizing the green-eyed monster. It's kind of like greed. None of us think we have a greed problem. And very few of us think we have an envy and jealousy problem. So how do we recognize when this is at play, when this is alive in our own hearts and our spirits? Here's just some practical ways that you can, you can recognize it. First way is this. You're frequently irritated with someone to a point where you have become hypercritical of them. This is the spear chucking. And the spears take the form of criticism or a critical spirit. Or they take the form of Accusations. We see, we, we're envious, we're, we're jealous of somebody, and so our attention is on them, and we want to bring them down to our level. Their success screams our failure. And when our identity is rooted in silly things like how much money we have or how much stuff we have or how much admiration and how many, how many people we're pleasing, what, what tends to happen is we become hypercritical of the person who's succeeding. And we take pot shots at them, and we throw spears. That's one way envy and jealousy manifests itself. Here's another way. When you see someone fall, you secretly rejoice. Quietly, in your own spirit, you're happy to see that that new car was in an accident, to see them hit a tough spot in their marriage. Third way I recognize the green-eyed monster is when someone succeeds, you, you get angry. How come all the good stuff happens to them? Why why do they get all the why do, why do they get all the blessings? How come none of that stuff ever happens for me? Why are all my friends getting married and I and I'm not? Good? How come we've been trying to have kids and and, and we've, it's been unsuccessful and we've not been able to have children yet? Everyone else is able to have kids. Anger rises up in you. And you know, by the way, those feelings initially are not evil. Disappointment, initial thoughts of disappointment and discouragement, those questions in and of themselves, it's not wrong. It's what we do with them and where they take us. The next way to spot the green-eyed monster is you're unhappy and full of self-pity much of the time. Now, why would I say that? Because you're playing the comparison game. Their house is bigger than mine. Their car's newer than mine. That relationship looks more fulfilling than mine. That bank account has got more in it than I have in mine. You're playing the comparison game, and so what you do is you're always looking up, and you're always comparing yourself to someone who seemingly is more happy or has more. You become increasingly discontent with your own circumstances. And so what happens is you become unhappy and, and you, you start throwing pity parties for yourself and, and no one wants to come to them because you're focused on, on yourself. Here's the next way you can recognize the green-eyed monster. You're obsessively competitive. Now, in America, we don't have this problem at all. But in other cultures, let's just talk about this, right? Here's the thing about uh, competition. We're typically competitive with those people who are most like us. Musicians are competing with other musicians. They don't care how successful a politician is. What they they want to be as creative, they want to be as, as recognized as other musicians. So we, we tend to compete with people who are closest to us or who are most like us. Politicians compete with other politicians, athletes compete with other athletes on the field and also for the for the you know the, the advertisements and all that stuff and that, that comes with it. Even pastors. Pastors can be with other pastors because they they want to be They want it to look like they're successful. So what ends up happening and um, is and I'm grateful this isn't this typically doesn't manifest itself in in our, in our district, but it ends up ends up being like this. Well, how's your church doing? Well, let me tell you how things are going. Here's what we're doing, and and you can smell it in the room, and you've smelt it before, as you've heard people sort of talk about what's going on in their life and. Um, and something happens to you. We're, we're, we're a competitive culture, and it breeds envy. We have lots of children of jealousy. Last thing I want to point out is this. Um, you are not a thankful person. An envious and jealous person tends to not be a thankful person. Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, captures this really well in this, in this quote. He says, envy is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me. I'm ticked off that they've got it going so well. And because of my resentment at how well things are going for someone else, I can't see God's goodness to me. So, so we'll, we'll put that list back up there. And By the way, um, side note, I see some of you taking notes, and that, that's great, some of those quotes. Just so you know, when you go to our, go to our, our app, and you go to the podcast. You click on notes. All these slides are there, just in case you're wondering. If you want to, you want to go back to a quote or something. You see there, because um, I put a ton of work in this. I really want admiration and recognition. <laughs> Don't clap for that. Oh my gosh, that was supposed to be a sick joke, <laughs> but it's there on the app. True story. A couple of years ago, I saw people taking pictures when I was preaching. I was like why are they taking pictures? It's so, that's weird. And oh no, it's it's the slides. They're taking pictures of the slides. I thought it was all about me. All right, moving right along. All right, so that's that's recognizing the green-eyed monster, okay? And, uh, and we have a hard time seeing that in, in ourselves. Now, let's talk about slaying the green-eyed monster. What, what do we do to kill it? Uh, here's, here's, Here's three things. The first one is sort of just a little bit of a perspective. It doesn't happen by squelching desire. You see, you hear a message like this, and what happens is sometimes you can pour condemnation and false guilt on yourself and say, Man, I, I have too much stuff, or I shouldn't have desire, or I shouldn't want, I, I shouldn't yearn, I shouldn't have longing. And, and that's not the case. That's not how God's made us. There's actually a major world religion that has the, this worldview that it's, it's I, I grew up in a, in a Buddhist culture in China. And Buddhism at its very core is, the, the, the whole aim of Buddhism is the way to, to remove suffering Is the world is to eliminate desire. You eliminate desire, you pursue nothingness, you pursue a meaninglessness, and, and that's, that's, that's the goal. Friends, I got great news for you. In our pursuit in Christ, it's not about eliminating desire. The desires that you have in your heart, God has put there. Now, Mark Buchanan, author and pastor, I think captures best what I mean by that. He says, here's the surprise. God made us this way. He made us to yearn, to always be hungry for something we can't get, to always be missing something we can't find, to always be disappointed with what we receive, to always have an insatiable emptiness that no thing can fill, and an untamable restlessness that no discovery can still. And then uh, Buchanan continues, he says, yearning is itself healthy, a kind of compass inside us pointing to true north. It's not the wanting that corrupts us. What corrupts us is the wanting that's misplaced, set on the wrong thing. Spurgeon, he he was a preacher in England uh, over a century ago. Uh, Spurgeon says, The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The fear of God casts out envy of men. So please don't hear this talk and and speak self-condemning words to yourself because you have strong desires. Just make sure they're aligned with the way you're walking in towards Christ. God's put those desires in you for a purpose. We need to steward them. The second thing I'd say to you is, is again, a little bit of, of a counsel here, is turning away from envy involves a turning towards Jesus. And you think, like, oh, well, duh, yeah. But, but I just want you to see this in, in the Proverbs. Proverbs 23, verse 17. Don't let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Turning away from envy involves a turning toward Jesus. So if, if you sense envy and jealousy, what you should wish you should understand is, that you're, there's, a, a, there's a return that you need. You need, you need a, a new focus, a new perspective. Turn towards your Lord. Turn towards Jesus. The third thing I say is just intensely practical. And it's from Romans chapter 12 verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. When a song is sung, when a party is being held and you didn't get invited, when your neighbor gets a new car, whatever the circumstance that could, give, could conceive and give birth to the green-eyed monster, the quickest and best way to slay it is to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. When you're rejoicing with someone who's rejoicing, you're imagining what it must feel like to experience what they're experiencing. When you're mourning with someone who mourns, you're imagining what it might feel like to go through the pain that they're going through. And you don't talk about yourself, you talk to them about their emotions. The best story I can tell you about this to illustrate, to shine some light on how effective this is, I, I, I may have told this story before, but I, I just this one I think just brings it into focus. Uh, When Trina and I were pastoring a church in Kelso, Washington, East Hills Alliance Church, there was a young couple in our church who got some great news. Uh, Brian and Sheila were uh, were good friends of ours, and and they uh, they found out that Sheila was pregnant, and they were very excited about that. And a week later, uh, they found out that that Sheila was not just pregnant with one child; uh, she was pregnant with two. They were twins. They got called back to the doctor's office and received the news that, yes, they had twins, but they were conjoined twins. Their two little girls, uh, Jessica and Emily, were were conjoined at the chest and shared one heart. Um, So they they knew pretty early on, outside of a miracle, that these two girls would not survive. They went full term uh, with with their children. Uh, C-section took place. And, uh, and, and the babies were born in Emanuel Hospital in Portland. And um, Trina and I had the privilege of being there, and again, we didn't know how long these girls were going to live, and they ended up living three days um, before they passed away. Now, it just so happens in our very small church um, where everybody knew everybody, uh, and uh, there was another family that was expecting a child. Dan and Lisa um, were, were pregnant, and they were expecting a little girl. And in an odd turn of circumstances, uh, Lisa's baby came a month early and was born the very same day that Jessica and Emily were born. And their girl was very healthy. Uh, Madeline I probably somewhere between 12 and 14 years old today. In our small church, one family is burying two girls. Another family is celebrating the fact that they have a new girl. Brian and I went to Kelso back from the the hospital in Portland to pick up some things for Sheila. She was still in the hospital after the girls had passed away. And um, he wanted to drive to the hospital and see Dan and Lisa. And I said, are you sure? Yeah. I drove him to St. John's Hospital in Longview, Washington. And we walked into the room where Dan and Lisa were holding their new little girl, Madeline. Madeline. And the moment they saw him, their faces went white and they were crying. Because in was walking a man whose daughters had passed away. And they were holding a healthy girl. And Brian walked over and hugged them and said, through tears, said to them, Don't ever feel guilty for having this healthy, beautiful little girl, Madeline. I'm thrilled for you. And I would like to pray a blessing over your daughter. He was like 24 years old. He's praying a blessing over little Madeline. And there's not a dry eye in the room. And what happened was when they were back in church and they looked across the aisle and saw Dan and Lisa with little Madeline, they weren't bitter, they weren't angry because that green-eyed monster had been slayed. Now they looked at a little girl and oftentimes thought to themselves, when Madeline would turn six or seven, eight or nine and say, that would be our girls. And it didn't lead them to an unhealthy place. It doesn't mean it didn't hurt. Of course it hurt. They grieved. In some sense, they still grieve. But an opportunity for envy to give birth to jealousy was slayed because they learned the joy of rejoicing with those who rejoice. Friends, you and I have all kinds of circumstances, probably not as dramatic as that, but little things that come our way in which we're tempted to be angry over someone else's success, to be unhappy with someone else's joys, or be joyful in someone else's sorrows. And that's the green-eyed monster and it will make a monster out of us. Let's pray. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Anytime we hear God's word, it's important that we respond to it. So what I want to do is, in these next few moments is just give you some space. I want to read some questions and give you an opportunity to just to talk to your father in heaven. You have a great dad in heaven. You may have not had a great dad here on earth. If you did, Fantastic. If you didn't have a great dad here on earth, know that you have a father in heaven that's merciful and kind. So as you bring your prayers of confession to him, know that he is merciful. Maybe some of these questions might prompt a response from you. Are you irritated with someone and chucking spears? When you see someone fall, do you secretly rejoice? When someone else succeeds, do you get angry? Are you unhappy with who you are? Are you obsessively competitive? Are you thankful? Lord, this morning we place our hearts before you. And some of us in this room today, Lord, say we need you. We see. We see our need. Hear our prayers. Heal our hearts.